Hello everyone and welcome to the Business of PT podcast. I'll be your host, JT Moore. In this podcast, we will be interviewing successful physical therapists and learning about their stories in the field of PT. We will discuss a variety of topics such as entrepreneurship, careers, and pathways in physical therapy, as well as important characteristics in becoming a great PT. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you liked it, make sure to subscribe to get updates when new podcasts are released. Thanks, everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of having Michael Spiegel with us today. He is the president and CEO of Good Shepherd Rehabilitation and also the executive chairman of the board for 360 Physical Therapy. He was previously the president and COO of Brooks Rehabilitation, and he has also been a senior vice president, vice president, director, and staff physical therapist in the hospital setting. Michael, thanks for coming on. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm really excited to be able to share um, with the audience all of these that we're going to learn. Would you be able to just go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and give a little background on yourself? Sure. Um, So as uh, Jason said, I'm currently the uh, president and CEO of Good Shepherd Rehabilitation. Um, I've been in therapy and rehabilitation my entire career, you know, started my career as a physical therapist and eventually, you know, moved my way into various leadership and uh, roles all within rehabilitation. I'm married. I um, have a daughter who is actually going to be graduating college this December, which is pretty amazing. Uh, I could tell stories. It feels like yesterday we just dropped her off to college and now she's getting ready to graduate. We just have um, um, one child. And uh, my wife is a physical therapist. We actually met, we worked together at uh, National Rehabilitation Hospital. We were both on the spinal cord injury uh, rehab program and we met, you know, and have now been married um, 20, 25 years. Um, um, Outside of work, you know, the things I like to do are I am very, very, very much a gym rat and spend many, many hours, more hours than uh, my family thinks are logical working out. Uh, it's a very important part of my life. I've, I've, I've been that way from, you know, for decades. Um, the other kind of major interest I have outside of work is reading. Um, I've, ever since I was a little kid, um, I've always been a kind of voracious reader as a little kid and all the way up through school and college and post-college. And it's as important part of my life uh, today as it's ever been. Uh, and then, you know, really what wraps around, you know, the rest of my life is really my career and, and the responsibilities I have at Good Shepherd. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for giving a little introduction to us. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of shared a little bit, obviously, um, with your career path in PT and how you met your wife. But could you kind of go into that and explain that career path and what got you into PT to, to begin with? Sure, sure. So I have a pretty, I, I don't have a remarkable story of what got me into PT. You know, I talk to a lot of people who've got into PT because maybe somebody in their family uh, received physical therapy, maybe they received physical therapy, you know, there was some personal co- co- connection. With me, I was uh, in college, I went to University of Maryland, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. And I was in my second year of college and had probably changed my major four times. Uh, and then, you know, one day, my father gave me an article about physical therapy, and, and I read it. And I'm like, that sounds like something I'd like to do. And it was, you know, kind of therapy from a sports medicine angle. And so being very active, I was like, that's not something interesting. And I decided to um, change my major <laughs> and uh, major in, uh, you know, uh, well, pre-physical therapy and then transferred into University of Maryland at Baltimore for the, for the physical therapy program. So my, my intro was pretty unremarkable. I would say 
the turning point uh, for me as it relates to therapy is I was doing one of my um, clinical internships. So, you know, before graduation, we had three clinical internships and I was um, at National Children's Medical Center in Washington, D.C. And I had the chance to uh, treat a young boy. He was 12 years old. Um, he and his brother uh, found their father's gun and uh, he was accidentally shot. And he was a, uh, about a T10, 11, 12, somewhere around there, paraplegic, a complete paraplegic. And I was working with him during his stay in, in the acute care hospital. And it was that moment that it really struck me that this is the work I want to do. Um, I want to get out of school and I want to work with people who had, who have, who had a spinal cord injury. And, uh, you know, it was that it was that kind of instantaneous. This is what I was meant to do. And so, you know, when I graduated college, I went right into inpatient rehab, right into a spinal cord injury rehab program. And uh, um, that was in Baltimore. And then, you know, went to a, another spinal cord injury rehab program in Washington, D.C. That was National Rehabilitation Hospital. Um, then moved out to California for the fun of moving to California and went right into another spinal cord injury rehab program. So that for, for probably the first five to six years of my career as a therapist, probably 98, 99% of all the patients I treated had a spinal cord injury. And that's, like I said, it was that moment of working with that 12 year old boy that I had that kind of, this is what I was meant to do. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's obviously a very impactful story. Um, yeah, I kind of wanted to kind of elaborate on that because we haven't had too many people on the podcast that have been able to work in that type of setting. Um, mm-hmm. What is so unique to working with people with specifically acute spinal cord injuries? Um, and what were some of those like maybe impactful, th- that one that you shared, obviously, but what are some of those challenges and what are some of those moments that you remember that made such an impact on you working with this type of patient population? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I can, you know, talk about a number of very individual patient stories that, you know, have, um, I would say, affected and been with me throughout my entire career. I can also talk about, you know, a number of years ago, I was asked about like beliefs and leadership, and I was able to kind of connect most of the beliefs I have in leadership back to working with people who had spinal cord injuries. You know, it's a type of injury where typically when I was working, you know, most of the people who had an SCI were younger, right? They often were not a whole lot older than I might have been. Um, their life changed in literally a split second, you know, something they were having fun, maybe living life and something catastrophic happened. And then they go through this, you know, typically pretty long stay in trauma. And then they come on to inpatient rehab. And then you meet them that first day and they just look at you, their entire world. To this day, I don't know how people with a spinal cord injury even kind of adapt enough to take advantage of rehab, but they do. Um, And I just found, you know, working with people who were going through something so incredibly complex, so incredibly catastrophic, transcends the patient. It affects the entire family, affects all kinds of relationships. Um, And it was the type of individual that I could connect to. Um, It was important to me as a therapist to be able to have a emotional connection, to be able to have a relationship, to be able to talk to my patients. and really develop a deep relationship with them. And it was the type of person that I felt like I could play a very outsized role in their life. Um, their time with me, you know, whether it was a month, two months, three months, 
um, was really, I had the great opportunity to play a very outsized role in, in, in their life. Yeah, no, like just based off of the, like currently my clinical rotation that I'm at, we have a couple spinal cord injuries um, that we're working with. And, and yeah, like the impact that you can have on somebody that has had such a catastrophic injury, that's been really eye-opening to me that I had never been really um, kind of had that exposure to the acute care side or that post-acute care. And to see those type of injuries up close and personal has been, it's been a really gratifying experience to be able to see how much you can help them. Um, and things that are so simple that we take for granted at times, but yeah, we, as physical therapists can make such a big impact on their lives. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And, and, you know, in, in addition to that, you know, cause I could tell you stories of patients that to this day, I think about and, and, and had influenced and, and, and affected me, um, you know, to this day, just kind of as, as a person, you know, the relationships you don't develop with people. Um, you know, I can remember, uh, you know, one patient in particular who was just a very, very complicated, severe um, 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 injury or illness, um, also, which included a spinal cord injury. And, and, and it was also the person who taught me that we as therapists can get as much from our patients as they get from us. It was just the relationship that we developed that I realized after working with him for many, many months and off and on for about a year, year and a half before he unfortunately passed away when I really reflected on it is I got as much from my relationship with him personally as he got from me personally and professionally. And, you know, those are really kind of special, special moments. And there are a number of patients who, like I said, to this day, I think about, and I think about how they affected me and, you know, what they went through. And, and again, the role I was fortunate to be able to play with them. Yeah, perfect. Honestly, like, I wish we could spend more time. I want to spend more time on this acute care spinal cord injury because I think this is such mm-hmm. a unique topic to talk about. Um, and I don't want to like shift it, but like I do, I do want to kind of talk about, we gave your introduction briefly and obviously you've had a lot of leadership and management opportunities throughout your career. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to know what happened, what motivated you to kind of change from the clinician side of it to entering the management side of PT and rehabilitation, where yeah. around that process happened? So um, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fascinating question because I was a therapist for now, it was probably about six years I had been a therapist and, and treating patients, loved, loved treating patients. I had not an iota of interest in being a coordinator, a supervisor, a manager, you know, all the little opportunities that arise when you're kind of working in hospital settings and, hey, there's a coordinator position or a supervisor position, no interest in, in, in any of that. I really enjoyed treating my patients. So it was about my sixth year or so as a therapist, that I really thought I was going to go back to school, get a PhD and teach and do research, um, teach physical therapy and, and do research. And I, I was pretty um, directed. I mean, I had a very specific area that I was interested in doing research around um, as it relates to people who have spinal cord injuries. And, and I thought that was going to be actually the career path that I was going to go, which is about 180 degrees opposite of the path I went. You know, so I, you know, really put a lot of time and energy thinking about going back to school and, um, and it really just wasn't ultimately going to befit my life to kind of stop working, go back to school full time, you know, get a PhD and in, in it was going to be neurophysiology and, and, you know, decided that really probably as much as I wanted to do it, it probably wasn't going to happen. So um, it was um, shortly after that, a friend told me about a therapy clinic manager position in a huge hospital system. I mean, this was like a 10, 15 bed hospital system. And they had a couple 
outpatient therapy clinics, two to be exact. And, um, you know, they had a manager position and the manager position was principally treating patients, but you were managing these two clinics. I viewed it as, okay, I'll learn something new, but um, really just treating patients. Yeah, I'll learn some things. I've got to do some management stuff that I don't really know, but I viewed it as I'm, I'm, I'm really just still a therapist and, and a clinician and I'm primary, primarily treating patients. So I went into that role and um, over the next couple years, um, I had kind of responsibilities increased every kind of year, year and a half or so. Um, but four years into, so, so let me back up for a second. So about a year, year and a half into being a clinic manager, I was getting some additional responsibilities and I had to make the decision of, I'm going to need to stop treating patients if I'm going to continue in taking on these additional responsibilities. So I was like, I'll, I'll stop treating patients, but if it doesn't work out, I can just go back to be a therapist, no harm, no foul. Um, great, I learned something new. Um, so it took me about four years into management that I finally said to myself, I'm gonna, that I kind of admitted to myself, I'm no longer a treating therapist. It was four years into that. Um, and that really what I am is I'm kind of seeing if I can make a career into management. Um, so that, um, that went on. So it was my fourth year. I kind of got an additional responsibility. Um, and, you know, at that time we had been living in California and we were moving, um, we were going to move back to East coast. My wife was pregnant and our family's on the East coast. And, and it was that moment I said, I need to decide if I'm really going to make my career in management. And I, um, had this kind of, uh, for me, this odd thought that the way I could determine if I could be good in management, and I didn't know how to define the word good, but if I could be good in management is, and I can't tell you to this day why I thought what I did, but I thought the only way I'll be able to tell if I could be good in management is to co-take a job for a publicly traded rehab company. I had only worked in not-for-profit as a therapist, but for some reason in my mind, that would be the test, if you will. So that's exactly what I did. I went and uh, went on board with a uh, publicly traded, traded rehab company, um, moved to Virginia, uh, was a director of a, a large operation in Virginia, and about two years later was asked to take a vice president role, and about a year and a half later was asked to take a senior VP role at corporate. And so it was that time I said, huh, I think I might be able to do this. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I'm now a senior vice president. We moved to St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and I was in that role for about, at, at that level, for about a year, year and a half uh, before, you know, the job was getting bigger. I was traveling regularly, like several days a week, had a young daughter, and I just felt that was not the job for me. I was not going to be the type of father that was going to primarily be traveling five days a week. And that's what I saw my peers doing. So at that time, I decided to um, move out of that position, which was a very hard thing to do, um, and um, ended up moving to Florida and taking a role with uh, Brooks Rehabilitation. There you go. Thank you so much. That was a lot of information. Sure. And I just wanted to ask a couple follow-up questions on that. Um, one of the things he said is kind of throughout that process, you realized that in order to take on those additional responsibilities, you needed to kind of give up that opportunity of, of working with patients. And obviously I think everybody that gets into the field of PT 
goes into it with the mind of, yeah, we love treating patients and helping patients. And obviously from what you had shared with us earlier, you really love being able to have that the interaction specifically with those patients. And what was some of the challenges with that when you first decided to transition away from being a practicing clinician? And when you ask that question, do you mean what were the challenges of uh, being a leader and making that transition? Like were there certain things that I found challenging or what were the I guess, yeah, I guess it kind of like kind of a two part, like as far as, yeah, what were some of those challenges in the leadership aspect, but also did you still feel that same fulfillment, even though you weren't working with the patients? I know that a lot of people right. go into it, being able to like work with patients and not having that. Did you feel a void or like what exactly happened Good. in that? Got it. Got it. So let me answer uh, the first question, which is, you know, what were the challenges I faced personally of moving into leadership and, and being um, kind of full-time in leadership? And, and that's, a, that's a pretty simple question for, for me to answer. Um, it's something I, to this day, I still find as a challenge. Um, and it's really, one of the things I realized as I moved into leadership is um, you can't please everybody. And I say that because as therapists, what do we try to do? We try to please our patients all the time. And the hardest thing I had to learn to deal with and process as I moved more and more into leadership roles is I can't please everybody. And that is very that was very hard for me. And that is very hard for me. So I had to learn how to kind of not that, that let that be a barrier because there's things that we do as leaders that don't please people, right? It's just you, every decision doesn't make everybody happy. It doesn't mean it's the wrong decision. It means it doesn't make everybody happy. And I had to learn how to personally deal with that because it was not in my nature. My nature was to be a pleaser and a people pleaser. And I think all of us who go into healthcare, go into therapy, want to please people. So what I learned in the way I dealt with that was uh, really the following. I realized every decision I make wasn't going to make everybody happy. However, what I learned to do and what I realized was the right thing to do is maybe every decision doesn't make everybody happy. However, everybody deserves to hear the truth of why I made the decision I made. Everybody deserves to understand what were the other things I thought about when making my decision. So why did I end up making this decision? And then the third is I had to make sure that I wasn't making decisions in a vacuum, that I really put the time and effort into talking to a lot of people when I was making big decisions to just hear how other people thought about things. So when I had to make decisions that maybe didn't make everybody happy, at least people knew they were hearing the truth. They knew I went through a process to really come up with my decision. It wasn't just pulling something out of the air. And they had the feeling and they had the trust to know that I got a lot of other opinions before I came up with that decision. So that's how I dealt with um, what at the very beginning, mid-career, and to this day is, is very hard and was the hardest thing transition I had to make from being a therapist to moving into, moving into leadership. Perfect. Yeah. And then could you elaborate a little bit on the aspect of not being able to work with patients all the time? Was there a void that you felt or how did that exactly go? Yeah, that's it. That's an interesting question. Uh, was there a void I felt? So um, yes and no. So um, the reason I say um, no is I wasn't out of the patient care environment, right? I didn't go sequester myself in some office and you never interact with patients, right? Now there are people who might do that in leadership, right? They don't ever really get back in the patient environment, but I didn't do that, right? I'd be out talking to patients and, you know, getting to know them. So um I could even remember years after um, 
you know, no longer treating patients, getting involved in, you know, giving advice about things that I knew really well from when I was a therapist, even though I wasn't really treating, just, you know, kind of give kind of like my opinions and things. So I never kind of pulled myself out of the clinical world and the clinical environment. Um, so that was number one. However, the void I felt um, is kind of an interesting one. So it's kind of a funny one that, you know, as I had been in management for a while and you realize things take a long time to happen, right? It could take months to happen. It could, you could be working on things that take years to happen. Um, and I began to lose what I refer to as the instant gratification that you get from working with patients. And granted, it's not instant gratification, right? We, you know, patients don't get better immediately, but it, it was maybe the bit of the void is I, I began to miss the instant gratification that came from seeing a patient make, you know, substantial progress or seeing a patient, you know, from where they were at the very beginning to where they were at when they were discharged. Um, but I never, I never removed myself from the environment. So I never really felt like I was missing a whole lot other than that, you know, kind of one feeling of the loss of instant gratification because leadership initiatives and projects can sometimes take a very long time from beginning, middle to the end. And uh, so that, that, that was the piece. But I think the important piece was I never pulled myself out of the environment. It wasn't like I stopped interacting with patients and talking to people and visiting them in therapy and, and so forth and so on. Yeah, no, I love that because I feel like yeah, if a leader is constantly involved in everything and is not disconnected, they still know what's going on kind of on the battleground in that sense. So to be able to have that, I feel like definitely builds that trust in anybody that like, that is underneath your leadership because they know that you're not disconnected kind of away from everything, not knowing what's going on. But if you're in the middle of it all, though, I feel like that would be a huge bonus in, right. in having people like buy into you in that into that leadership model. And it's fun and it's gratifying. I mean, just kind of quite simply, it's fun and gratifying also. So, you know, to kind of miss that. Um, but I do, I have worked with uh, a number of leaders who do end up disconnecting themselves um, and not maybe those that are not clinicians and maybe those that are clinicians. Um, and then it's not infrequent that I work with leaders in healthcare that were never clinicians and are, you know, can, can be disconnected from truly what goes on on a, you know, hour to hour, day to day basis between clinicians and patients. Yeah. And I actually kind of wanted to ask a question on that. Um, something unique about you that I learned is that in Good Shepherd, you are the first CEO that was a clinician prior to working at your current position. And I just mm -hmm. kind of wanted to know how has that benefited you and what are some of the unique characteristics that you bring that sometimes someone that isn't a clinician or in the healthcare um, field, what are those unique attributes that define you and compare to somebody else that hasn't had that experience? Right. So yeah, in my role, I'm the first CEO who is a uh, clinician. And in my prior role at Brooks as the CO COO, I was the first one who was a therapist. And again, big rehab organization, just like where I'm at today is a big rehab organization, but in you know, no case was somebody a therapist. And I could tell you many examples of rehab companies um, that, you know, are, could be mid-size or substantial in size where um, a therapist has never been um, really an executive. In fact, it's probably more common than, than, than uncommon. Um, so the question of, you know, what I bring is, of course, I bring a perspective. Um, you know, I bring a perspective that maybe other people around the table don't bring. And it's not that my perspective is meant to be pro-therapy. 
It's meant to have an awareness of the clinical world. It's meant to make sure that the clinical world, since that's the business that we're in, is never forgotten, is always put front and center. Um, so it's what I bring is the perspective. Um, what I bring is the voice, right? To be able to speak about the clinical world, to be able to speak about the clinical environment, to be able to sometimes introduce doses of reality, or often I would say I would introduce doses of common sense of, uh, you know, what's happening in the clinical world. And, you know, what we're thinking here as executives are highly complex and is really never going to work. So I, I, I would say what, what, what I bring is perspective. Um, that's probably the most important thing that I bring. Um, and I can bring the dose of reality. Um, and I can bring the dose of, of, of common sense. And the common sense is, you know, just that what goes on in that interaction between a single clinician, a single therapist, and a single patient, and making sure that that really never gets lost and is always front and center in decision making. Perfect. I love that. Yeah, I kind of wanted to go ahead and ask, what are some of those important leadership beliefs that you've kind of learned, maybe from other people throughout, but also from yourself? You kind of talk, like touched on them briefly. Are there any specific leadership beliefs that you feel are so important in becoming a successful leader in the rehabilitation world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I have uh, a, a number of beliefs that uh, I mentioned earlier that I can trace virtually all of my beliefs on how I work as a leader and what I prioritize a leader. I can trace almost everything back to um, being a therapist who worked with spinal cord injury patients. And, um, you know, I, I can't really give you the reason why there's that kind of connectivity, but there is that kind of connectivity. You know, one belief I, I have is that um, every patient deserves a chance. One of the things that um, to this day frustrates me more than anything is when I hear therapists say, this patient has no goals. Uh, Therapy is not going to help this patient. And if there's one thing that I learned in working with people who had very, very catastrophic um, injuries or illnesses is every patient deserves a chance. Every patient deserves us to throw the kitchen sink at them to help them in any way we possibly can. And to quickly write off a patient that they have no goals or there's nothing we can do, um, I think is kind of a failure of intellect and, 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 and a little bit of um, lack of empathy because um, if not us, for people who are referred to therapy, who have significant you know, functional disabilities and limitations, if not us, who is there really to help that patient? So that's a very, very strong belief that I have is every patient deserves a chance. Second belief I have um, as a leader is um, the idea of continuous learning. And I think you're going to get into some questions about that, but that is something that has driven um, my entire career. Um, and I think as we'll talk about, I'll talk um, a little bit later about, I think it's the one defining factor between therapists who become satisfied in their career and stay satisfied in their career from those that become dissatisfied and, and jaded by their career. So, you know, the belief in, in, in continuous learning. I have a belief um, that, that I developed and, you know, this probably goes back to when I said I had never had a desire to be a manager or coordinator or supervisor is that um, the natural state of uh, most clinicians who move into management is they quickly forget that they were ever a clinician. Uh, and they, 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 they're now in management and you would have thought they never were a clinician. And it was like the natural state. So, you know, I have a real belief about that. I have a belief about um, the most important trait we can develop as leaders 
is really the uh, trait of um, trust and, and building rapport. And um, I'd like to tell you a little bit of story about that one because it was a lesson. There was one particular patient that it was kind of the seminal moment for me to really recognize that. And it was a um, 23 year old woman who was in a um, rollover car accident. And her young son um, got out of the car just fine. Her parents got out of the car just fine. Um, she had a brain injury. She lost her eye. She was a C7 quadriplegic, heart and lung damage, and had an amputated leg. And uh, she was my patient. And uh, it was about her second or third day. And of course, every day in therapy, she was crying. I mean, it's just an extraordinarily tragic incident. And um, it was a Friday um, that I went up to her room and, you know, to talk with her before I left for the weekend. And um, her sister was there and her sister was asking, so, you know, how is my sister going to be when rehab is all over? And I laid out a picture that was highly optimistic about how her sister was going to be able to completely take care of herself. And I laid it out and, you know, my patient looked at me and she said, you know, basically, how can you say that to me? Like with the way I just described it. And I looked at her and I said, you just got to trust me. And it was kind of at that moment where I realized the importance of if I could build the rapport with my patients where they trusted me, then they were going to work harder for me. And conversely, I had now a deeper responsibility to them to work harder for them. And that was a patient that I learned that lesson of uh, the importance of rapport and trust. If I didn't have rapport with her, if I didn't have trust with her, she would have never achieved exactly what I thought she could achieve of leaving rehab and being completely independent and having a really good path in life. So that's another critical belief I have is the one about rapport and, and, and trust. That is perfect. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I really love that because yeah, I just right now, kind of in my first um, rotation that I've been having um, that internship, I've, I've kind of experienced that to a certain degree. Like now I'm going into my eighth week and the more and more rapport that I'm building with these people, the, the harder they're willing to work and push to their goals yep. and the harder that I'm willing to invest in them. And I've definitely yep. seen that. And I love that you, that you share that because I definitely want to remember that and make sure to apply that each time that I'm working with a patient, each time I meet someone new with my other internships and, and rotations to really build that rapport early on as fast as possible. Because yeah, the more that they see that they really want to uh, just buy in and give it their all. So that kind of is that continuous. exactly right. Mm-hmm. I love that a lot. And yeah, I kind of wanted to, you mentioned it before. And I kind of actually want to go into it right now. You mentioned the importance of continuous learning um, and that what kind of is the defining factor of keeping a cl- young clinician motivated and to continue to learn and progress or kind of get stagnant. Could you kind of yeah, elaborate a little bit on what you were thinking on that? Yeah. So, you know, I've had the, I've had the privilege over years to, you know, meet and work with many young clinicians, you know, who are moving from student to first job. And it never ceased to amaze me of, you know, watching how long it would take before clinicians become, uh, reach a point where they're like, is this all there is to my job? I went through all this school and I come to work every day and all I do is see my whatever, five patients, eight patients, 10 patients, whatever it may be. I document and then I go home. And is this all there is? And I've always been amazed that it doesn't take very long for young clinicians to have that unfortunate realization. Um, It can easily happen by year one or two. And so 
On the counter side, I've looked at what are the things that clinicians do that keep them incredibly engaged, incredibly jazzed, incredibly excited about their job, not only year one, but year five and year 10. And the only thing that I've seen work over and over and over is accepting or practicing um, continuous learning. And when I talk about continuous learning, I don't mean meet your minimum CEU requirements that you have to do every year to renew your license. I mean, where learning becomes a fundamental part of your job. Um, you know, kind of, it's intellectually stimulating, number one. Um, you f- as long as you feel like you're reading and teaching and learning new things, you're going to be more engaged with patients. You're going to have more kind of, uh, uh, kind of that culture of inquiry and curiosity that comes with continuous learning. Um, but it is really the only thing I've ever seen that it universally works is if you accept in your job that right away you want to be or develop that habit of just learning. Um, you know, we get out of school and we think no more going to the library or looking articles up. Um, and um, what I would suggest is you never want to break that habit. Um, I'm a prime example of that. I'm, you know, talked earlier, one of my, you know, major pastimes is reading. I've always been, a, I've always been a reader. And I, I can remember getting out of physical therapy school. And the next week I'm back in the library looking up articles. And I tell people, those are the days you had to go to the library and actually request <laughs> the journal uh, that was kept behind or in the basement um, um, or whatever. But it's that, that the act of continuous learning, the act of intellectually challenging yourself the act of challenging your patients, the act of having constructive conversations with your peers or constructive conversations with other clinicians is the only thing I've ever seen that really keeps clinicians jazzed and engaged and, and, and far, far, far less likely to burn out. I, I love that because actually you're the second person that has mentioned the importance of that and the importance of going back in. I had Trent Nestler on a couple of weeks ago um, on the podcast. And he mentioned the same thing and he's been, yeah, he's been, uh, been practicing clinician for quite a while, quite a few years. And he said that was one of the biggest things that set him apart early on because people that once they, once they get through school, they kind of think, Oh, I now I'm done. I, I finished this. I can just work on crafting my like, kind of perfecting my craft, but like we're continuing to learn. We're continuing to see what can we improve. And so to be able to constantly dive into the research, dive into that knowledge for him, he found it such a benefit and has, has kind of propelled his career so much. And so I love that you have the same thing. Um, are there any specific kind of, in the acute care world, I guess I'd say, are there any specific journals or articles or um, that you would recommend the, for people if they're interested in this type of setting to read or go into? Yeah, I don't know if I could recommend any specific journals or articles because there is so much out there and it's so easily accessible. Right now, everything is so easily accessible. I think it's the I think it's the act of being curious and letting that curiosity drive you to want to learn and want to read and and want to search. Um, I mean, we're in a day and age where the access to information is just absolutely unbelievable. Um, it's just making sure that you develop the habit early, early on. I mean, right out of school, develop that habit of. I'm going to continue to read. I'm going to continue to search. You know, the therapy profession is kind of interesting. And the comment I'm going to make is going to probably be to some maybe a little bit provocative. But when you think of the therapy profession, 
all you really ever have to do is pass one test, right? And so you get out of school and all you have to do is pass that one test. And the reality is for the next 10, 20, 30 years, you can get a job. And the reality is almost nobody who hires you is really going to care how much you continue to learn over that time. You have the license that you earned five years ago, 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. Um, and, and so let me contrast that to another example. And this is where maybe it gets a little provocative. I was thinking about this a few months ago. I had to get take my car in to get repaired. And for some reason, I, I was just kind of thinking about the person repairing my car. And cars are basically driving computers these days. So if you think of uh, a mechanic who gained skills 30 years ago, they would be unemployable today if they hadn't had to evolve their career to learn how to uh, fix uh, what are basically driving computers. And then you throw the autonomous vehicles on top of it. They're even you know, driving almost spaceships. But when you think about it, a therapist only has to pass one test one time, take some maybe perfunctory CEUs to keep their license going, but really have really no need to learn much more and be able to have a job every year. Um, and, and so it's a um, uniqueness of the profession. I would uh, argue to many, it's a fault of the profession, um, but it's a reality of the profession. So since you don't have that external drive to force you to get better, you have to create that internal drive to you know, take advantage of that curiosity and, and, and learning. And um, so I would just kind of give you that bit of a provocative, maybe example. Yeah, no, I think that that's your really big gem right there that you shared, just that internal drive to continue learning, to continue progressing, um, to be able to be like optimize and become the best therapist that we can be for our patients. So I love that. Thank you. Um, and yeah, another question that I wanted to kind of go into, and Ken mentioned a couple of times, so you hopped on at Brooks Re Rehabilitation um, and you initially, from what I understood, it was about 400 clinicians and you helped them grow to over 2,500 clinicians. And I just wanted to kind of um, hear about that experience. And could you share with us some of the things that you learned along the way with that? Yeah. So when, when I got to Brooks, we had about 400 employees, uh, not all were clinicians. And then when okay. I left Brooks uh, about a year ago, we had about 2,500 employees and, you know, probably, I think we had on the order of four to 500 therapists, uh, um, you know, when, when, when I, when, when I left, when we had 2,500 employees, you know, when I got there, we had a, a, a freestanding rehabilitation hospital. We had, um, uh, 11 outpatient clinics. And, you know, when I left, you know, at one point in time, we actually had gotten to the point where, um, our rehab hospital for about four or five years was the busiest rehab hospital in the United States. Um, it was, you know, uh, went through some, I led some really interesting clinical transformation in inpatient rehab. And, um, um, you know, we, 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 we did, um, you know, just really grew and did extraordinarily well. And when I left, you know, we had close to 50 outpatient clinics and very rehab intensive skilled nursing facility and very large home care. Everything was, um, because we were a very large rehab organization, all of our um, all of our lines of business were very very heavy rehab centric, um, but when I look back, so you know we we grew in many many ways. You know we got bigger, we added more services, but what we really accomplished over that time was um, I got to play a very very important role of um, helping Brooks become um, what I would say to this day is probably one of the most intense learning environments for therapists of any non-academic um, 
rehab or healthcare system in the country. Um, we created just an enormous amount of um, continuing education, crowdsourcing for new ideas, um, scholarly programming, the list goes on and on. Um, and just, we, we became a learning environment. So we became a magnet uh, for therapists who wanted to work there because they knew that this was a place you really could learn and get better. Um, so that was uh, very fundamental. I would say to this day was very fundamental to who Brooks was um, able to come um, over the 15 years that, that I was there. And then I um, left about a year ago and uh, moved up here to Pennsylvania to become the president and chief executive officer uh, for Good Shepherd Rehabilitation, which um, a lot like Brooks, independent, not-for-profit um, rehab organization. Um, independent mean we're not affiliated with anybody. Uh, we're on our own. Uh, and, you know, very, very similar lines of business, inpatient rehab, outpatient, home care, long-term care, uh, so forth and so on. Perfect. Yeah. And what can you say, are there any things that you've already learned in that, in that time with Good Shepherd that are unique just to that specific role of being a CEO or some certain things that you found with that setting? So the question about specific to being CEO, you know, so I was president and chief operating officer. So becoming CEO is, um, you know, like that saying, it's lonely at the top. Uh, it's lonely at the top, <laughs> right? Sure ultimately, ultimately, you've got to make the decisions, the big decisions, right? You, you know, you, you, you collect all the information, you talk to people, but the big decisions you have to be the one to make. And there are a lot of influencers and there's a lot of influences. Um, you are the 24 hour day, seven day a week, 365 day a year representative uh, as, as a CEO. Um, you are the spokesperson and you are the public example of the organization. Uh, and there is a lot of weight that comes with that. You know, I, I often said when I was president and, and COO at Brooks, there's a lot of weight that comes with that. You know, I, I talk about it, that being in a senior leadership role is a very, very personal kind of um, activity. Um, like I said, you get influenced by a lot of things. You have a lot of people trying to influence you. Um, you have a lot of decisions to make. Um, everything you say, your voice is amplified. You know, when you're talking to employees, when you're writing letters to employees, your voice is amplified. So you always feel like you're on stage, that you're always being measured and evaluated. Um, and that's a pretty personal I I experience. And so, you know, I, I, I had a lot of responsibility as a COO, but CEO, you really feel much more the, the, the weight of that, if you will. Perfect. Yeah. And I can only imagine being up there at the top and making such important decisions that will affect so many people to have that on your shoulders is, is a big calling to be able to have to fill and to do that. Sometimes it'll be, I'm sure is, is hard to do. I mean, we um, have, we have 2,300 employees. And so when I think about it and what we started about as a leader is I'm not making decisions for 2,300 employees. I'm making decisions for 2,300 employees and their families. Cause if I make the wrong decision or if I make bad decisions, um, it's our employees and their families who kind of indirectly feel the weight of that, if you will, or the pressure of that. So I don't view it as I have 2,300 employees. I view it as I have 2,300 employees and their families. You know, I want, you know, the people who I work with to go home happy, to go home and feel like they work in a good place. You know, that how you feel at work can infiltrate your, your home life, right? If you're happy, if you're not happy. So I've kind of always view it as 
it's not just the employees, it's the employees I'm responsible for and their families. Perfect. Yeah. No, I love that. Cause yeah, it, it definitely carries over like days that have a good day or days that have a bad day in the clinic. I mean, no matter what, like, even if I want to say it doesn't or doesn't like leaving that stuff at, at work and not having it home, it's still, it's hard to do. And so I'm sure like having that, having that in your mind as a leader helps so much in carrying that over to everybody else. Yep. Um, so I want to kind of ask how can, so with you in this role, how can we have more PTs, um, more clinicians be able to get in these type of roles of management? Obviously, it's something that I think a lot of us going in don't have this in mind, and I don't think you had this in mind either. But how do you think kind of the further progression of our careers um, in the profession, what could we do to be able to expand and, and have, have sexy? I'm sorry, let me repeat that. How can we have physical therapists in these type of positions and have that expansion in our profession? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. That's a, and that's a complicated question. Um, so when I think about that, because again, if you go around the country to most mid large size rehab organizations, there's no therapist who's a CEO. There's likely no therapist who's a COO. Um, you know, they might have the head of clinical services, uh, but they're not the voice and they're not the decision maker, um, right? They're a, a voice at, at, at the table. I think the, I, I kind of think about this question of how to have more therapists in, in, in the leadership position, that there are certain macro factors and there are certain micro factors that um, have to be overcome. Number one, the one macro factor is, you know, if you look around at large acute care hospitals, it's not common that there's a clinician who's the CEO. There's not common that it's the COO is a clinician, right? So even in most parts of healthcare, it's far less common than more common that a clinician is leading the organization. Now, if you look at acute care hospitals, more and more are being led by physicians. So there's definitely a movement in acute care systems and a recognition of um, the importance uh, of having a physician CEO. So you can make the analogy. So in rehab organizations, shouldn't there be an equal importance to have a maybe therapist who's a CEO, uh, but that's kind of an emerging trend. Um, and, and so I think part of that as a macro factor is um, ultimately you're running a very large business and uh, clinicians aren't trained to run businesses. Um, it's not that we might not have the intrinsic skills. We're never trained to run businesses. And many of people don't have the intrinsic skills because you're wired in a very different way. Um, so I think that's number two is, um, um, we're just not trained and it's just not normal. And, and, and it's a big business. I mean, running hospitals are very big businesses. Um, and, and so often, you know, the leaders that are being sought out are those that have run businesses and have grown businesses and, and they tend to come out of the business world and, you know, often out of the finance background, you know, many CFOs who become CEOs are people in the finance world. And I think the third barrier that we have, and this one is a, maybe more specific to uh, the therapy profession, is um, we don't have as a profession the influence that we should have. And what I mean by that is think of all the parts of the rehab world, uh, or I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Think all the parts of the healthcare world that are really rehab driven. Inpatient rehab hospitals are, you can't survive without having a lot of therapists. Um, home health agencies, um, very rehab centric. Many skilled nursing facilities, very rehab centric. Obviously outpatient is very rehab centric. So it's kind of interesting that 
even in the parts of healthcare that are heavily dominated by therapists, you couldn't have the business without therapists. I don't think the therapy profession has gotten to the level of being taken seriously enough to recognize, just like acute care hospitals, more and more recognize the importance of having a physician that in the rehab world, we're just not typically recognized as being the leaders. We are just subsumed into the business of inpatient rehab or, or home care or skilled nursing or whatever. So I think those are some of the macro factors. Then on the micro factors, meaning what is it that um, therapists need to do to maybe kind of navigate into leadership? So I kind of think of um, the leadership path as kind of like when you go up a mountain, you have a series of switchbacks, right? So, you know, you get to one point as a leader and now you have to gain certain skills to get to make that move it across that switchback, you know? So where I find, um, so, you know, if you go to any rehab hospital, outpatient rehab, rehab departments in skilled nursing, of course, all the coordinators, supervisors, managers, and directors are probably clinicians, right? And they're probably therapists. Then as you get past that, you find the number of therapists goes down incredibly dramatically. And so what I've seen happen where many therapists kind of fall off that kind of being able to make that turn in, in the switchback is they don't develop or don't recognize or don't receive the training to number one, begin to think like an outsider, like to make that turn, you can't just think like a therapist. You now have to be able to think as an outsider. You have to be able to think in a much larger picture, a much more strategic picture. You have to be willing to accept the responsibility that you're running a business. You're responsible for people. You're responsible for financial performance. You have to be willing to accept the responsibility. You're, you're responsible for all these clinical indicators, rules, regulations. And that's where I find most therapists end up not being able to make that turn. They, they have a tough time coming out of the world of being just or thinking just like a therapist. And, and they struggle to make that turn of, I have to think of a much broader picture and I have to think beyond the therapy profession because as you get higher and higher into leadership, you're thinking about things like IT and HR and finance and regulations and legal issues and HR issues, the list goes on and on. And that's where I find people really fall off is they, they, they're, they're at that director level. They may even be a VP in rehab, but they really struggle to make that next turn. And then as a profession, we don't really have well-developed training programs. So when you look at the physician world, there have been developed over the last decade, very, very sophisticated training programs to help physicians um, move from being a practicing physician into physician leadership, into you know, large leadership roles. And as the therapy profession, there aren't really analogs of really intensive development programs of helping a clinician become a business leader. So that is what I would say on the micro level. So I think it's a combination of macro and, 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 and micro level of maybe why there aren't as many therapists and maybe some of the things that, you know, might need to be done differently or changed to, to, to be able to kind of change that, that, that point of there aren't many therapists at the top, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think that, that, that was, that was great insight from both angles, kind of from the top down and the bottom up, kind of what needs to change to be able to get that to, to 
take place. So thank you for that. Um, and yeah, I, I want to obviously um, be mindful of your time and we're so grateful for you coming on. Um, but I just wanted to make sure to ask, are there any other additional information or pieces of advice that you would like to share with the audience? Um, so I, I will tell you, I, I, and I say this all the time to people, I think the um, best part of healthcare is rehabilitation and therapy. I think it's one of the rarest parts of healthcare where we get the opportunity to develop the relationships we do with patients. Um, I mean, when you think about it, what other part of healthcare do you both get to spend the, quality, the quantity of time with a patient and that we get to work with a patient through what can be very complex catastrophic events to really get them back to a life that you know they're happy and on a good path. So I think we work in the um, best part of healthcare. Um, I think, you know, going back to your last question about leadership is um, I think we as therapists need to recognize that there are many parts of the healthcare industry that can't survive without us. Like I said, inpatient rehab, you know, home health, skilled nursing, and we should take a far, far more serious look at ourselves and a far more serious look at the industry of um, why or how do we gain the clout um, in these rehab-centric environments um, that we should have? That we are not the afterthought on the business side, we're the forethought, but we can be the afterthought when it comes to the influence side. And so, um, I, I again, I've I been in this industry from day one out of college, um, and I'll be in it my entire career. I think it's the best part of healthcare. Um, and I think there's a lot more and a much, much greater role that we should all play uh, in, in, in our future. Perfect. No, thank you for that. That was great knowledge right there. Um, and if someone is interested in talking with you more, um, what would be the best way to contact you? Oh, yeah, great. Um, I always tell people I'm an open book. I, I, I tell it to employees all the time. I'm an open book. I'll talk to anybody about anything. Um, you know, the easiest way is uh, email. And so my email is ms. P-I-G-E-L at G-S-R-H dot org. So that's Michael Spiegel, M-S-P-I-G-E-L at G-S-R-H dot org. Perfect. Yeah, thank you. Because I feel like, yeah, there's a lot of questions that people could still ask. And there's so much, I think so much knowledge that we could glean from you um, if we had more time. But I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Um, and I definitely want to re-listen to this and learn about how to improve my personal skills right now as a therapist from the things that you've already shared with us. And also like leadership skills, I think would also transition to working with people. I just kind of in that, an aspect of a, like a clinician with their patients, that if you help mm -hmm. them, I love that portion of, of building rapport and just kind of creating that buy-in and always being kind of immersed in it. Like that's something that I don't know. I, I feel that is such an important thing in, yeah. in PT. And I, I'm thanking you for sharing that. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate the time. The hour flew felt like we were it talking did. for 10 minutes and um, yeah, you know, feel free to give anybody my um, email and, you know, you can also feel free to give anybody my, my phone number and I'll, I'll give you that. That's 904-476-4639. And, you know, feel free to give anybody my number. I'd be glad to talk to anybody. Perfect. Thank you so much. Michael. Great. Have a, Absolutely. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Bye. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast. I hope you liked that episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe and also leave a review. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.